Well, good morning, everyone. We're going to get rolling here today. What we have is Revelation chapter 2 through 3, kind of a double set. If you were with us last week, we entered into this. And if you weren't with us last week, please don't be afraid to ask questions about things that I'm just assuming. But what we did is we looked at these seven letters or seven edicts, if you will, that were written to these seven local churches in modern-day Turkey, but what they called Asia Minor back then. I've got a picture up here, if this is helpful, one more time. And uh, Revelation is fundamentally a letter written to these seven churches in roughly the 90s AD, in a time when the culture and the political climate and everything else was either apathetic towards Christianity or anti-Christianity. And they were facing both the seduction, the temptation, and the uh, manipulation of the culture around them to conform their way of thinking and living to something other than the way of Jesus. And so last week, we looked at Revelation 2 and 3, more or less from that satellite view. Today, what I want to do is actually drill down into the letters themselves. So if you would open to Rev 2, we're going to go through this together in the Bible. I think some of that is going to be helpful for you. And I just want to quickly review on this as well, that these letters are all written in the style of an edict of a first century Roman imperial edict. Much like a president or governor will issue an executive order today, the Caesars of the Roman Empire would do something very similar where they would issue a Roman edict. An edict isn't the same as a letter, right? They both have the purpose of written communication, but it's a different genre, if you will, just like you would call an email different from a text or a card, right? They have their own style. They have their own purpose. They have their own sense of flow. And what you see in these Roman edicts is you'll have Caesar declare something about himself, and then he'll write both praises and excoriations, for lack of a better term, to whatever local town or magistrate or people group that he's targeting. It will often include some kind of reward for their faithful service or their veneration of the imperial empire. It will often also include some kind of warning if things don't change in some capacity. And if you look at these first century edicts and you look at the style of writing John is using in Revelation 2 to 3 as he goes to each and every one of these churches, they mirror themselves against each other like perfectly. It's, it's, it's really kind of uncanny and weird. And so a first century listener or reader would get Revelation 2 through 3 and know exactly, I think, what John is doing. He, they would just pick up on the style of what he's mimicking or emulating. And of course, the, the point between the lines of this, if you will, is that you have an emperor who is commanding you to do this. But Jesus is claiming to be an emperor of a different kind of kingdom, and the question that you have to answer as a Christian is, whose authority are you going to bow to and whose commands are you ultimately going to follow? This Caesar is telling you this, that Caesar is telling you that. You have to figure out which one you're going to follow. That is the basic thrust of 
Revelation 2 through 3. Make sense? So, as we start to dig in, I think it might be helpful to read the letter to Ephesus together. And then what we're going to do is use that as a springboard into how the other six churches function as well. So, Revelation 2, starting at verse 1. If you're using a red letter text, you will see this is all like like words of Jesus because Jesus is dictating this. He is telling John to write these words. And this is what he says. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, you can find it on the map. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered, and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand that is, uh, from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Now, it's really easy in Revelation to get caught like a deer in the headlight. We start getting caught up in the symbolism, right? We start getting caught up in the oddity of the language. And, and you can have these moments where you're like, I, I don't even know what to begin, and you just get kind of like numb and stupefied, and you stand there. What I want to do with you today is help you learn how to unpack one of these edicts in this letter. And you basically start with what you know and just work through it systematically. So let's figure out what we know, even if we don't know what we know about what we know. You, you like that? Did that work? No, not at all. Not, revelation is clear. What I mean is this. Start at the top, and it says something. Who are we writing to? And I'm going to fish it from you. Who are we writing to? We are writing to the church in Ephesus, but what I'm going to force you to do is give textual answers. Because it's easy to kind of run with our own just assumption of who we're writing to, but who does Jesus actually tell John to write to? The angel, the angel of the church at Ephesus. All right, that's, that's a little bit different. Would you agree? And I know it's begging a question right now. It's like, how do you write a letter to an angel? Well, you don't need to know that yet. But what you do know is that Jesus is commanding him to write to an angel. So stick with what you know, even if you don't know what you know. Are you following a little bit more now? So we're writing to an angel. Now do this and just skim the rest of the seven letters or the next six letters and look at how they begin. What do you see? 
to the angel, to the angel, to the angel, to the angel. All of them are written to the angel of that particular church. Okay, take that one. Imagine you've got a big stove, like a commercial stove with like 19 burners on it. Take that and put that on that burner right there. Okay, let's go a little bit further. What does it say about Jesus? If you had to construct basically a character profile of Jesus based on the edict to Ephesus, give me the data. Who is Jesus or how is Jesus revealed here? He holds seven stars. He's the one who holds seven stars in his right hand. And what else? And he walks among the churches or the seven golden lampstands. And we're fortunate in this case because at the end of Revelation chapter 1, we get the vision of Jesus and all this grandeur and all this power. And he is described in chapter 1. You could look at it. It's like verse 13, 14, 15, 16, something or other as one who's holding the stars and walking among the lampstands. And you're like, okay, well, that's weird, right? But then it interprets the symbol for us there. And it tells us that the stars in the end of chapter one are these seven angels of these seven churches. And it tells us that the lampstands are the seven churches, right? So this is one of these fortunate episodes when Revelation does the heavy lifting of actually interpreting itself for us. So we see something about Jesus. Something is being revealed about Jesus. Something is being lauded about Jesus. He's the one who holds these seven angels of these seven churches in his hand. Now you might be asking the questions. Who are these seven angels? What does this even mean? What, does every church have an angel? Do, do churches have more than one angel? What am I supposed to do with this? I don't know, right? You might not know. Don't worry about what you don't know. Because uh, I'm going to tell you. But more importantly, it's so easy when you read Revelation to get hung up on what you don't know instead of focusing on what you do know. And if you focus on what you do know, you will find the book will be far more edifying to you than getting hung up in the minutia of the esoteric elements. So if Jesus is holding angels in his hand, I don't know, what does that like invoke? Maybe you know, authority, size, um, power. You know, we, we, we talk about God having us in his hand or in his grip. There's something comforting, maybe, in that. There, there's something God is bigger than even the bigness of this world. I, I think we could all naturally kind of go there, right? He walks among the seven churches, among the seven golden lampstands. So I like to play a kind of a game like this, going, you know, where is Jesus in 92 A.D.? And some of you who like to overly spiritualize things might say something like, well, he's in our hearts. Um, some of you who like to think more biblically might go, well, he's in heaven at the right hand of God. But according to Jesus, you know where you find him? You find him in Turkey. You find him right here. He's walking. You know, he's on a walkabout right there. Jesus is claiming I'm not distant from you. Yeah, it is true, biblically, that I am up in heaven at the right hand of God. And for those of you who love Hallmark movies, yeah, he is in your heart, I suppose. Um, but, but let's stick with what he's saying is true and not what we want to impose on him. You can find me, guys, right 
here. I am walking among you. So he's present, right? We have that kind of thing. Okay, let's keep pushing the narrative. Now we saw, like an edict, there were some praises being offered, right? This is what you're doing well, guys, all right? Everyone give it up for Ephesus, right? What is Jesus praising this church for? Shout him out. Okay, they, 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 they work hard. What else? I, I didn't hear everything. I'm sorry. What's that? Their deeds. Their deeds. He sees their deeds and he's praising them for their deeds, their good deeds. What else? They don't tolerate wicked people. He's praising them actually for that. What else is he praising them for? Their perseverance. They're hanging in there, right? What else? Yeah, singular there. You know what? I don't know. I'll have to check that for you. And you've convinced me that I'm not going to download the Greek New Testament on my Bible app so I can check those in real time. But um, I will follow up to find out. Because that would be interesting. Has he shifted from the singular to the collective group? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. What else we got? Mike. They're able to discern between true and false. You have tested those who claim to be apostles and have found them false. So they're, they're discerning. They're, they're, there's a wisdom there. They don't just swallow every new, fanciful, exciting, or provocative teaching that comes their way. Yeah, these are all good things they're being praised for. Was there anything else in there? You haven't grown weary along the perseverance line? What's Sally? You've endured hardships, and then, Garrett, did you mention something? Oh, uh, yeah. They uh, hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Yeah, and you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, so rock on there. You know how you know if you've landed in a good church? First question you need to ask, like when you're going on a web, like if you church shop, right? Just go on the website and go, do they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans? You know, you go, that's a church for me, all right? They hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which immediately begs the question, who are the Nicolaitans, Right? I don't know, right? Neither, neither do you. But don't get hung up on what you don't know. Stay rooted in what you do know, that there's something here that you hate, and as anti-Christian as it sounds to hate something, there are times when hate is used as a virtue or something good. And if that kind of creates a, a, a mind thorn for you or a soul thorn, well, let it. Jesus will do that all the time. I mean, Jesus is all about screwing with us, right? In all the right ways. Let him and see where it can guide you. Okay, so we have this collection. We know who it's to, and we've seen that that's kind of constant. We see this revelation about Jesus. We have seen these things Ephesus is being praised for, but then it turns what are the things he has against them? They have forsaken or lost their first love. There's all of these things that you guys are doing so well, but Ephesus, it seems somewhere in the process that instead of these being servants, they have become masters. Or better put, instead of becoming means, 
They have become ends. Your good deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, your discernment, your wisdom, your hatred of the practices of the Nicolaitans. All of these are good things, but it's almost like they've taken first priority instead of some kind of means to lead you to your first love. Now, what is their first love? Who is their first love? You hope Jesus, but it doesn't actually say that, does it? So before you automatically assume, just stick with what you know. They've forsaken a first love. Who is the first love? I don't know. Maybe it'll flush out and maybe, and I'm not saying we can't bring intuition and the rest of scripture to help guide things, but sometimes we're so quick to jump there that we come up with answers different than where it wants to lead us. And I'll flush a little bit of that out later and and give you some examples on that. So we know who it's to. We see something revealed about Jesus. We have the fours, we have the againsts. Now you'll find some kind of call to action. Sometimes it's an encouragement, sometimes it's a warning, but there's always a call to action that Caesar does with an executive order. I'm not just writing to you because I'm bored and I like pen pals. I want you to do something, right? These emulate that. What is Jesus calling the church in Ephesus to do? Repent. Repent. Yeah, we see that. Boom. Repent. What else? Go, yeah, go back. What were those deeds at first? I don't know. Go back and do the deeds you did at first. What are those deeds you did at first? I don't know. But I do know you want me to do that. So let me kind of keep that alive, right? And and somewhat open-ended. So we need to repent. And remember, the word repent, while becoming a highly technical piece of language for us today, fundamentally means just to turn, right? To course correct if you will. So you could even see how repentance and going back makes sense, right? So go back. Do what you did at first. You kind of got off track there somewhere. Guys, what else? Is there anything else in there they're called to do? Listen. Did you see that in there? Listen. Listen. How quick are we to talk, right, when it comes to our relationship with God, or just in life, probably? Listen. And then, Zach, you had something. Well, I was going to say, I think John too, but yeah, before repent, remember. Remember. Which to me is, is kind of like a, it's a relational aspect to remember what we had before, what you, and then repent. I'm yeah, I feel like there should be some good, like, pop song written about it or something, right? Remember what we had before. Remember the love that we once shared. We, we've lost that. I mean, I, I swear, like, every third country song is rooted in this concept, isn't it? It, and Hallmark. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we've got a pattern built, right? We're, we're seeing these things. And then, what's the incentive? In other words, we see something else. If we choose to listen and do what Jesus is telling us to do, or ignore and not do, you will see some kind of sets of, shall I say, rewards or consequences? Something that is to come. Not now. It's not an immediate reward. It's always what's called eschatological, which means future. It means when, when, when Christ comes and like everything's kind of laid bare, right? Something's going to happen if you do this. What is going to happen to Ephesus if they ignore or, or follow through? Yeah, Mike. 
take your lampstand away. And we know what a lampstand is, right? Because Revelation's interpreted it for us. If you don't do this, translate the symbol, what's going to happen? Church is going to die. I'm going to take your church away. It's not even, and I like die. I'm with you on it, John, because that's probably how it would work from our vantage point. But from Jesus' standpoint, you even get a more active idea that, no, I'm going to take it away from you, right? How is Jesus going to take it away? I mean, I, I've never seen the Lord high God reach down from heaven with a physical hand and uproot like a piece of property and like transplant it. But yeah, he'll let it die or he'll stop protecting it or stop being present among it. And it might be a beautiful shell still with a lot of wealth and a lot of good things happening. But Christ isn't there anymore. Where do you find Christ if you don't do it? Well, you might find him up here. You're not going to find him there anymore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We use that language all the time. Like when you go into a church and you don't feel like the spirit is there and they might have great programs and they might have wonderful people and they might have uh, lots of money in the bank and they might have beautiful facilities, but... Is the spirit there? The Jewish temple got destroyed big time by God's, you know, intervention with enemies coming with them. I mean, you look at the churches in Turkey today, where are they? Fantastic example. If you didn't hear John, the Jewish temple, which, you know, this is the temple King Herod really built. And, I mean, it was opulent beyond anything of imagination. And Jesus himself says, I'm... Your house is left desolate, is Jesus' exact words. You've got this beautiful structure. I'm pulled out. It's destroyed. And then to John's further point, where are these churches in Turkey today? Because I'll tell you this, they're not there. They are not there. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. There you go. There you go. Look at how much you know about the church at Ephesus. Sure, there's questions. Who are these Nicolaitans? What is their first love? Right? We can go on with other things. What, 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 who were these people who claimed to be apostles that they rejected? We might not know, but look at how much we do know. And based on what we do know, we can run with. By the way, there's one more reward that wasn't stated, and I want to push this one. Um, and again, let's be textual here. What else is going to happen? You get to eat of the tree of life. If you repent, if you do this, you will get to eat of the tree of life. And that might beg all kinds of questions. What is the tree of life? How do I eat of the tree of life? What if I don't like the taste of the fruit of the tree of life? You, you know, and every other kind of odd thing we come up with, but that's kind of fun. Um, but it's kind of a good thing. You get to eat of this tree. Now, what I find helpful in looking at these seven churches is rather than getting hung up on all the individual, shall I say, symbols, look for something else instead. In fact, look for two things. Look for patterns and look for the point. Because at the end of the day, you might not know what each symbol means, but you can kind of distill the point out because when it comes to the point, it's pretty clear. Remember, go back, repent, right? We can identify with these types of things, but hopefully by looking at this church in Ephesus, we can be guided to examine maybe similar issues in our own life.
even if we're not in theirs. The other thing that I'd encourage you to look for is patterns. And what I mean by patterns is look at patterns between the seven churches, not just in one church alone. I put a slide up here for you and you're going to laugh. Not that one. Thank you. Like, I, I know you can't read that. But what this is, is a table, you know, I just put together that lists the churches at the top. And then if you can make out the left column, can you make out column A? Can you squint that out? Yes. Okay. You see the church, you see Jesus. What do we learn about Jesus and how he reveals himself to that church? What does he have in favor of that church or for, as I put it? What does he have against that church? What is the warning or encouragement to that church? What's the consequence of following or heeding or ignoring that warning or consequence? And then finally, what is the blessing to come? Now, what I did for you today is I actually printed it for you. So take one. Here, let me give that to you. Take one, and if you just kind of like pass it back, you guys will figure it out. In fact, let me do that. And here, we're going to start way down here. Just kind of make it around. The front page of this is a crib sheet that I thought might be helpful to hold on to of, of, of various just like macro points about Revelation. What are some of the big overview type of things, things that we talked about the first three or four weeks? Um, interpretive principles, if you will. The back page, of course, is this table that you have up here. And I, if you're a paper kind of guy, just fold it up and use it as a bookmark until this class is done or you know, put it on your fridge next to the artwork of your child and put more stars on this than on their homework or something like that. I don't know. Um, but hopefully it can help synthesize some of this information. And here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to use this as a substitute for the Bible. Read the actual Bible. Revelation 2 to 3 shouldn't really take you more than like 10 minutes to probably read. But after you read it and your head is swimming with all of these details, maybe use this as just a way of cutting across and looking for common themes looking for a greater composite description. Because remember, even though these are edicts written to specific churches with their needs and their issues, everyone's reading everyone's mail. So if I was to put this another way, imagine that John sent this out. Imagine that John sent this out as an email, that he sent Revelation chapter 2 to 3 as an email. And what he did in chapters 2, what is it, 1 through 7, is he made it to the angel of Ephesus. But then he cc'd every single other church on there. So it's not to me, but I'm reading it. And then he sends a separate email to the angel of the church in Smyrna. But then he cc's the entire church of Ephesus and the other five on that one. Do you understand what I mean? Because the idea is, even though I'm writing something specifically to you, what I'm writing to everyone else is also more or less for you. And that's where we find ourselves fitting in today. You don't live in Ephesus. You don't go to the church of Philadelphia. 
You might not have the exact same experiences, problems, or temptations that they're facing or faced in Thyatira, but there's something there that I bet is going to factor into your spiritual life at one time or place or another. And so there's something about Jesus you need to see there. There's something in the praise he gives to that church that you should kind of go, well, I want him to kind of praise me for that too, right? There's something about the warning he's giving to them going, oh yeah, let's not step into that, right? There's something about the call to action that I think resonates universally. And there's something, of course, about the rewards that I think resonates universally as well. I don't think it would be correct to say that because he promised the eating of the tree of life to Ephesus, but not to Smyrna, that the people in Smyrna are like, oh man, I wish I lived in Ephesus. I wish I got to eat of that tree. That, that would seem a little false, right? Wouldn't it seem instead that, well, if he's going to give to eat of the tree of life in Ephesus, he'll probably give it to me too, if I do the same thing? You see how to kind of go into this? Yeah. To the churches, yeah, well done, well, yeah. Do you see that phrase? He who has an ear, that's a Jesus phrase. You will, of course, because it's in Revelation and he's saying it. But what I mean is you'll find that throughout the Gospels. Remember whenever Jesus would teach, especially the synoptic Gospels, not as much John, um, and especially when he would do parables, he would go, he who has an ear, let him hear. Which you're like, what does that mean? It, it's just kind of a way of going, listen. Open, if, if you've got these, use them, is more or less what Jesus is saying. Perceive what I'm actually telling you, even if it isn't clear up here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And if you look through all seven letters, you're going to see that exact same phrase. You're going to see something else that I didn't put on this chart in all seven or nearly all seven churches as well. And this is, a first, uh, this is a page one thing. Look at verse 2, 7, we'll call it B. After he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. To him who, what? To him who overcomes. Remember, Revelation endorses Nike, right? Nike is translated win, conquer, overcome. That's Nike right there. If you want to reverse translate it, to him who Nikes, to him who Nikes, right? You're going to see that theme through all seven churches as well. So here's what I'd like you to do for about five minutes. I think it's more fruitful to do it together, but you choose what you want to do. Maybe skim through two and three. Maybe look at the chart. Look for common words, common themes, common things popping up. If there is a symbol you want to talk about, well, then we'll talk about it. Um, but more importantly, if there's a trend that you're seeing, I'd like to hear what you're stumbling onto in your investigation of this. And I know this isn't much time, but I talk too long. I don't listen enough, all right? So go, and then we'll huddle back up. Now, for time's sake, I have to pull us back in. Here's what I'd like to do, because I know you probably didn't really get through this to the depth that you'd like. 
as you were going through this, hopefully you were finding maybe certain keywords popping up, various patterns emerging. Certainly we see the pattern of the edict in all seven churches, but maybe in the kind of language. Possibly as you're reading, you're starting to come across some of the symbols which are not as easy to decode as the tree of life or something like that. And you're like, what do I do with that? What I'd like to do is a couple of things. One, I'll encourage you, I, I only want to take this as far as there's interest. So, if you want to do some Bible study this week, read Revelation chapter 2 through 3 a couple of times. Don't do it once, do it, a, I would recommend a couple of times, and it is a quick read. Um, rereading several times, I find, often works better in Revelation than like trying to deep dive and hovering on a verse for like eight minutes or something. Use the chart if it's helpful, but add to it or amend it, if you will. And here's where I'm going. If there's something specific about a church or a symbol or a revelation of Christ or whatever it is that you want to unearth, maybe you're like, I know you mentioned this, Zach, last week, like, what's this angel thing about, right? If you want to talk about that, we'll start next week by taking your questions symbol by symbol to what you're interested in, rather than trying to do them all, otherwise we'll be bogged down in this for like 18 weeks, right? But more importantly, focus on what you know than what you don't know. And what I would recommend is that as you read these edicts to these seven churches, you ask yourself two questions. Number one, what did I need to hear in this? What is Jesus telling me that I really needed to hear today in this? Number two, what do I need to act on? He is calling each church to action in one way or another. What do I need to hear in this? And what do I need to act on? And I promise you that will make these two chapters far more fruitful than knowing the esoteric wisdom behind a specific symbol. Make sense? We're out of time. We'll pick it up there next week. God bless.